City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. All right, we should be on air. How are you going, Kevin? I'm uh, going all right. Are we, uh, well, we are on air. <laughs> <laughs> we, shouldn't just, we shouldn't just... We should be on air and we are on air. Yes. And it is City Limits. We're back for the year. It's the first Wednesday in February when we always wander back after our break. That was Zeb who said that. Uh, Zeb, uh, Zeb Peak, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Good. Kevin. Kevin. How are you going? And, uh, we're the show today, we're it, and John McPherson, our regular transport commentator, because this is the first Wednesday of the month, he'll be in, um, he'll be coming on the program a little later at this stage, we're still at a stage where guests have to be on the line, so John won't be in the studio with us, but we'll have him online in about 20 minutes, and there's plenty of stuff to talk about, of course, there, but a lot yeah. of things, we're, we're back, and I, I, I always, every year I make, I make this comment, people who come on back on air after a break, you know, regulars, and say, gee, it's great to be back. <laughs> Don't believe a word they say. <laughs> Do not believe a word they say. I had to drag myself out of weeks of sloth and procrastination to get ready for today's program. So. Oh, you we, poor thing, uh, Kevin. <laughs> we, better, we better open with the normal ritual, otherwise people won't know it's city limits. Here we go. I'll pour some tea. Yes, what a good idea. There we are. Yeah. Um, and before we begin, I think it would be good to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from Wurundjeri country, stolen lands. Um, and also that, like, the things that we talk about on this show, urban planning, transport, housing, they all really interact with colonial violence and, like, the history of that in this country and um, also First Nations struggles for, like, against that colonial violence. So yep. I think that is good to mention. Absolutely, it is, yes. Absolutely. I'll go to, we're going to stand up and pass this over. Yep. Here we go. This is part of the having the studio with screens and things between us. Um, yes, that's that's very valid. In fact, the, pro, the 3CR opens every morning with a Becky show with that acknowledgement, and I think it's it's important for the day to start with that. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting items over the break, um, Oxfam um, did a study and discovered that Australia's billionaires doubled their collective wealth to 255 billion during the first two years of the pandemic. These are the people who got massive amounts of money from the government, mm-hmm. um, and they they found their justice and poverty group found 47 people are wealthier than the poorest 30 percent of Australians combined. That is 77.7 million people. That's 7.7 million. 47 are wealthier than. The record-breaking nature of the growth in their wealth means that while many have been pushed to the brink, billionaires have had a terrific pandemic. Central banks have pumped trillions of dollars into financial markets to save the economy, yet much of that has ended up lining the pockets of billionaires riding a stock market boom. The Oxfam report, Inequality Kills, has warned of the deadly nature of the world's growing extreme economic inequality. The report says inequality is contributing to the death of at least 21,000 people each day or one person every four seconds based on deaths globally from lack of health care, gender-based violence, hunger and climate breakdown. So um, 
congratulations to the billionaires for making mints out of the whole thing. Yeah, well done to them. Mm. Yeah, it's terrifying how the pandemic is just exacerbating every inequality that's out there. Yeah. Um, yeah and of course, I'm going to come better. to it, but, but the, they, they said let it rip because, it, because bosses and employers wanted it to let rip so they can make money and you know, get the economy far more important than the health of people. But then when the health started to deteriorate, all people like us, I know I'm virtually locking down, only going out for essentials, mm-hmm. um, they then start screaming that people aren't spending money, that workers can't get to work because they can't. And so, they, and so now they scream that the government has to help them again because they let it rip at their behest. Yeah. Um, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah. But in, as a result of that, or apropos of that item about the wealth, wealthy getting wealthier, you might have noticed that in the honours list the other day, or you might not have noticed because you couldn't get a stuff, but in the, <laughs> in the honours list the other day, um, people get honoured for services to making themselves extremely wealthy, filthy rich. Um, one of the people who got honoured for making herself extremely rich, filthy rich, and one of the highest honours was Gina Reinhart. Oh, yeah. And I thought one of the cruelest responses was a letter in, of all places, the Financial Review next day that said, Gina deserves a tax bill, not a gong. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cruel, isn't it? Oh, so harsh to her. <laughs> Poor old Gina. Yeah, um, talking about people that are getting more money during the pandemic and also... Um, I suppose, industries that are getting more money. There was uh, an email sent around by 350.org talking about the gas lobby, who are apparently calling for $100 million more million um, in public money to fund their project, projects after, and this is something that 350.org has been researching. Um, the government has already given $1.5 billion in public money um, to the gas industry since the pandemic began. That's called a gas-led recovery, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot going on um, with that at the moment. Like, There's also mm. the, I think it's the Curry Curry uh, gas plant that is being planned that Labor has recently said that they will support as yeah. long as... Um, it transitions fairly quickly to green hydrogen. Which and the fairly quickly was left pretty open as to how long, what they meant by fairly yeah, quickly. It was, yeah, it was by 2030, but mm, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> not right. promising. Yeah, yeah. Once again, they've backflipped, of course, yes. But, uh, yeah. And it was, I'll, I'll, I'll mention in passing, actually, because the, the last couple of days there's been photos in the Financial Review of the Again, the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, those who made all that billions, mm-hmm. enjoying the tennis both on Saturday and Sunday night, the two finals. And, you know, the, the, the cream of Australia's riches of the rich of Australia's corporate world were there. But on each night, there was also Albert, um, Anthony Albanese among them. On the first night, sitting next to Peter Costello, the former Liberal Treasurer, so I presume he would have had a few ideological discussions with Pete. <laughs> um, and, he, and the second night, he was sitting right behind the president of the Tennis Association, Jane Herdlicker, who's also, of course, the um, head of, um, of um, Virgin Airlines, ah, who went okay. there, who took over that job last year when they when they started up again. And her role in life is really to crush the workers there. And uh, mm. so there was Albanese surrounded by people whose role in life is to crush the working class. So it was lovely to see, lovely to see. Golly. Also, airports. There, I found an interesting thing from um, 
some news site called energymagazine.com, uh, which is that it, the title was Solar Farm to Help Melbourne Airport Reach Net Zero by 2025. Ooh. So I wonder what you thought about that. <laughs> They're basically trying to um, do things like create 12 megawatt solar farms um, to sort of pretend that they're not an well, airport. Well, the joint impact, the fact that they've sent stuff out, we got, I got it in my mail, I must live close enough to the airport, I don't think I did, but to get, to be, get the presumably a compulsory handout, but about their new um, runway. Yeah. And they quote all the figures by 2042, I think, to the figure they use, or 43, uh, the in- massive increases in passengers, in freight, in, in aircraft, at a time when we should be looking at climate change problems to do with the airlines. So they're actually screaming out that they, they need this because of the massive increase in air traffic that's going to happen. So these are the same people who now say they care about the environment. Well, it's stranger, isn't it? <laughs> so mysterious. And it goes back to what you've been saying quite often about um, this idea of like offsetting carbon and things like that. Like in the At the end of the day, you're still emitting... Um, greenhouse gases yeah, into the atmosphere if you're right. flying you planes. Keep emitting what you're emitting, but then say, I'll plant a tree in Indonesia and that'll offset it. Yeah. Wee! <laughs> <laughs> I think the, uh, the, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, uh, if you want to offset it, the best way to offset it is don't do it. Um, uh, now, about the Australian Open, I, I do have a bee in my bonnet over this. I've mentioned many times over the years that the Australian Open is played on land that used to be, um, before, particularly pre-television, on Sunday afternoon it was the Arab Bank speakers and you had all sorts of speakers from all over the place, Christians, and but communists and people on the left went down. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was a, it was entertainment because people higgled and they carried on, but it was, you know, speakers got up and pushed their point and it was a, a, you know, a real scene of, of, of political activity and left-wing political activity in Melbourne. Um, and then, of course, for many years, and when unions were very big, and particularly in the in the Vietnam War days, uh, ma- what were then massive May Day marches in Melbourne with huge union floats and and ethnic groups in all their colours and, and, and quite magnificent marches would march from Trades Hall and always end up on the Yarra Bank on that spot. That was yeah. the, that was like centre. And the ethnic groups in particular would set up stores with cheap food, and we'd, you know it was just a great day um, on that spot. So that spot was really a hive of left-wing political activity in Melbourne. John Cain government gave it to the tennis people and now it's been turned into what it is, which is just a haven for the rich. Mm. I can't understand, by the way, as an aside, why people spend lots of money to go inside the place, sit outside and watch it on television when they could be sitting home like I was <laughs> watching on television without paying all that money to go there. But anyway, that's... Well, I don't, I'm not the person to ask about that because I just don't really get watching sport anyway. But well, sorry admit, to all the people that are sports fans. I must admit with certain sports I am a bit, you know, I get into it. But, but um, for instance, apparently if you wanted to buy a water bottle, not with water in it, but one to put water in, it cost you $99. Um, wow. They, they had a, a major fashion label doing the official clothing, so that cost you a fortune if you wanted to buy it. Uh, food, of course, you know, stick, they had so-called celebrity chefs, so they, they'd stick something in a roll and you'd pay $20 for it, whereas the old days the ethnic food was very cheap and wonderful that we used to get. But what I'm really, what I want to really complain about is that when people wore those who wear his peng shui 
T-shirts. Yeah. They got the police in and, and the security and threw people out and asked them to, and forced them to take them off. Now, there was a bloke and a woman. I thought, if the woman's got nothing underneath, I mean, what that could be a bit of embarrassment anyway, apart from that, and the bloke might only have this thing on as well, and then he'd get thrown out for exposure or something. Uh, but that, that aside, the fact that they said we're not bringing politics into it really got to me when I consider the history of that, that ground that was handed over by a Labor state government to the elite of Melbourne. Mm. And, and, and continually since then, they've poured billions of public money into that centre um, so that the elite can have a wonderful time for a couple of weeks a year. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's an interesting angle on that. And, of course, you just you can never take politics out of things. Like, the politics is always in everything. So it's a, you're fighting a losing battle anyway. Um, but it's also interesting, I think, um, from a like urban planning angle or lens that um, a lot of the ways that cities are designed have in mind um, a sort of uh, control of the public. Uh, so the amount of like open spaces that people can gather, the way that streets are organised, um, you know, whether they're like defendable by the army or not these things are actually considered when people are building cities um and i think that it's often the case that it's actually like a a very cynical um plan by officials to replace these places where um you know these political spaces where people are speaking uh with something completely different so that's right, and, and I think there's not too many spaces they open up where you can enjoy yourself without having to spend money. There's yeah. a few, but most of them, you know, it, it's based on cafes or retail places and all sorts of things. That's supposed to be part of the fun, fun, fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's an interesting point. We we will, in fact, um, we're going to be talking, hopefully, to finally and hopefully and finally to Kate Shaw in a couple of weeks on our housing day. We might raise that point with Kate about the way cities are a plan because she is part of it at Melbourne. So yeah, okay. Um, at you know, Melbourne Uni, not Melbourne City. Um, yeah. Uh, what else have we got? I've got a news item. Yes, um, I've got so a few things, but go on, yep. So apparently Scott Morrison has pledged a billion dollars to protect the Great Barrier Reef, yep. but at the same time he's still planning to claim that it doesn't need protection um, when the UNESCO deadline comes in to, like, see whether the reef is in danger or not. So mm. he's pledging money to protect something that he is also trying to claim doesn't need protection. That's right. And, <laughs> and one, of the, one of the items, I mean, they, uh, the critics have, have quite correctly pointed out that what he's not doing is addressing climate change as the real problem, of course, in the reef. Mm-hmm. He's, trying, he's doing all sorts of alle- alleviating problems to try to stop it happening other than address why it's happening. Uh, and one of them is, in fact, to investigate coral that can exist in hotter conditions, in warmer conditions. Now, that, you know, that's just giving in to climate change. That's just saying we're not going to do anything about climate change. We're going to hopefully get coral that can adjust itself to the fact that we're doing nothing about climate change. It's yeah. going to get hotter. And if, 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 in fact, their experiments don't work, well, one presumes the coral just dies. It's dying anyway. Yeah, not great. Not promising. No, not at all. Not even mildly. And of course, we mentioned earlier about um, let it rip and um, and the fact that it was all about business. And business then discovered that after letting it rip, people didn't come to work or couldn't come to work. 
and weren't spending because they didn't want to go out because of the rip bit. Um, and I think the rip bit's quite appropriate too because it stands for rest in peace. So it was a good choice of words uh, for all those people who were dying. Um, but um, the, interestingly enough, they then said, OK, well, look, we'll... If people, if people can't go to work because they've had a contact, they've got to go into isolation, we'll change the definition of contact. So if you have a contact, you actually haven't had a contact. Um, and they said uh, the definition of going to work if you're sick, you can't go to work if you're sick, but we'll change the definition so you can go to work if you're sick yep. if you do certain things. So, yep. you know, and the poor bloody workers, and there were places we know there was an abattoir, for instance, where sick workers with COVID were actually forced to go to work. Uh, but employers keep saying they've got the safety of the workers at heart all the time, of course. But one of the, the, the more, most hypocritical things that happened was after they made some major changes about workers having to go to work when sick and uh, changing the whole meaning of, of contact, uh, uh, which is at the, again at the behest of the bosses, the ACTU called a meeting of, of unions and national union leaders, this was on... This was reported on Tuesday 18th, so they met on the 17th of January. Yep. Yesterday demanded all employers carry out urgent new risk assessments for, o- for Omicron and provide workers with free rapid tests, N95 masks and improved ventilation following an emergency meeting of the peak union body to address the surge in coronavirus cases. Now, arising from that, and don't forget the... The, the bosses and the, and the government made the decision about workers having to go to work under these conditions, uh, not the conditions the unions wanted, the conditions the bosses wanted, yeah. uh, without consulting the unions at all. But the response was extraordinary. Big businesses have accused unions of trying to inflame the situation with, th- with threats of stoppages and attack their proposed measures as unaffordable for many firms that were struggling to stay afloat. Industrial Relations Minister Michaelia Cash said that after months of lockdowns across Australia, it is disappointing that union leaders are now complaining about Australian workers going back to work. It seems they would rather that they stay at home indefinitely. Um, now, Sally McManus made some, made some the usual good points, but then... Um, our old mate, Australian Industry Group Chief Executive Innes Willock said, while of course workers cannot be required to work in an unsafe situation, which mm-hmm. we actually want them to, <laughs> the, the, that, that was mine added of course, the ACTU's threats of work stoppages are not appropriate. Instead of issuing edicts from afar that inflame the situation, add to uncertainty in which, if adopted, would make things worse for employers, employees and the economy. The economy, that's the important bit. We should allow employers to to continue to calmly take sensible measures to maintain COVID-safe workplaces. Well, the new regulations, I think, do just the opposite. Um, and, um, and it goes on. And, um, and, of course, Cash again said, um, the government had always placed safety at the forefront and work with unions. This shameless attempt by union leaders to pretend they have not had the chance to work with the federal government is a charade. Well, they did make the decision without them. The Business Council of Australia... Um, said relaxed isolation rules were um, rejected the claim that the reject rules were putting workers at risk. The government is taking quite thoughtful and measured steps as we learn to, to be in this next phase of living with the virus. See, what it's living with, that's the important thing. The scenario now has changed and off they go. So, um, soon as the, so the unions were the, were the really bad people of the whole situation, uh, apparently. Yeah, so incensing. Um, yeah, it is interesting, especially for particular essential workers that um, 
like health workers and teachers and childcare workers, um, there's this sort of idea, especially like of health workers, that they're sort of like angels that are like giving up their lives to like save other people's lives. And then there's this, so there's this like unrealistic expectation that they'll be able to take anything and that like, I don't know, it's it's interesting the idea of like health workers um, taking industrial action and striking and like what the backlash to that would be because I can just expect that people would be like, how could you leave patients in the lurch and that kind of thing. So they're, they're in this quandary where, like, do, do you know where I'm going? Yeah, I'm, I'm not it's explaining a, myself very well. It's always a difficult one for those workers. They yeah. have a great moral difficulty over that one. But years ago, when the, when the nurses had a big, the big nursing strike, you, you probably weren't around, you wouldn't have been probably around at the time. But, <laughs> but, uh, but the massive nurses strike many years ago, which went on and on, um, the, the nurses did it in a way that they had the public sympathy and support throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, we had picket lines days and, you know, and, and there was one of the usual beep if you support us thing and lots of beeping going on. But the, the general tone from the community was they supported the nurses in their struggle because they were, you know, being totally exploited. Um, so if it's done properly, I think people understand that health workers who have been so magnificent you know, really, if they do take action, it's action because they've been forced to by by um, circumstance. Yeah, all right, look, we better take a break. Get John on the line because he'll be starting to sweat up and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, talk transport. Yeah, okay, we'll go to a quick break. Yeah. 
That was Sudana Lamine Sonko by Ajak Kwai. Um, we'll go on a little bit of a, an extended break just to give John time to get ready to get on air. Um, but in the meantime, I'll announce this Rahu event that's coming up. Uh, so on Wednesday the 9th, golly, what's, what's the day? Oh, it's next week. Um, so Wednesday, February the 9th, there's going to be discussion discussion examining renters' rights in Australia with the Renters and Housing Union and the support network for international students, um, SNIS, and Homes Not Prisons. So the forum will offer an open discussion on organising beyond the pandemic for community solidarity and housing justice. Um, as quote, COVID-19 exposed pre-existing failures in renting laws and policy in Victoria, specifically in Melbourne, having endured one of the world's longest lockdowns. Organisations like Rahu created both structural pressure and individual um, on um, policy to, to get better outcomes. And the Housing Justice is a free online event on Wednesday, February the 9th, from 5.30pm, um, so you can check the website for details. We'll have it on 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits. All right. Yeah, it's on now. Um, but um, we'll mention that again next week as well. And In fact, John, when we rang John, he'd just woken up and asked, could you give him a couple of minutes to wake up and probably <laughs> have a cup of coffee or something? And yeah. <laughs> I'm, worried, I'm worried that he might have been, been awake, started listening to us and gone to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I did. When I called him, I heard the radio on in the background. So maybe we did just, maybe yeah, we were just, just very boring. Which means every listener out there might be sound asleep now snoring. Let's <laughs> hope they wake up for John. Um, look, we'll, we'll take a break again. We'll get him back. He must have woken up by now and had his coffee or something, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Last up on a train in the early morning light, I shuffled down the aisle. Suitcase by my side, and I took a window seat, and I looked upon the door. Found that it was so blue as we pulled away so slow. I felt that all longing as the steam power grew, and someone smoked your back heat. Your sand was on me.
Okay, music fades and John McPherson comes on. John, I was just commenting um, that um, I hope you didn't start listening to the show and that's what put you to sleep. <laughs> no, Kevin. No. <laughs> I, had a late, I had a late night and I was... Um, last, <laughs> when I spoke to you last night, you were having a drink, John. Is that anything to do with that? Oh, uh, well, you spelled, but, but so are you, Kevin. What's your well, first what's drink? my first drink for the year? Yeah. February had started, that's right. That's right. Well, you were very, that was very impressed. You were, you were very restrained. And I hear it was even a good, a good, I think it was a glass of Taylor's Shiraz. It was Is that a, right? It was, a pleasant, it was a very pleasant read, yeah, it was. Oh, good. Um, and I, I had two more after that, by the way, just three, that's it. But my doctor, I hope my doctor isn't listening. She says no more than one, so. Um, oh, yeah. gee, what a, what a killjoy. Okay, transport. Killjoy. Transport. Transport, yeah, um, here we go. Now, look, a couple, there's been some items I think are quite related. There was a story mm. in January about traffic dipping on Melbourne roads. Yeah. Um, and it's fallen to 66% of the pre-COVID baseline over the last two years. Right. Um, but interestingly enough, Westgate had actually gone up from, from last year. Um, yeah. In the morning peak, but but Eastern Freeway, M80, Ring Road, Hollow Street, the Pean Highway also all went down. Mm-hmm. So there's less cars on the road. Um, but there was also a related story at the time that motorists in Melbourne fork out more on cars than uh, anyone else. It costs them more to run a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Melbourne, um, 16.4% of income, is, which is the national, and the national average is 14.8%. And transport costs, mainly made up of car loan repayments, fuel and servicing or changing tyres, have risen to a nationwide average of 367. But it's quite expensive in Melbourne to run a car. At the same time, though, um, there's been a major dip also, as we know, in public transport use, um, which would indicate, I think, if they're both dipping, that people are working from home a lot more or not working at all or whatever, but I think, I suspect, working from home a lot more. And, of course, at the start, at, in um, the start of the year, fares went up on public transport, which the Herald Sun screamed about, and the opposition spokeswoman carried on about the government doing terrible things to people. Um, yeah. Although it's a pretty minor increase, really, I suppose. It depends on how much money you got. But it's, it was only, it's only 40 cents a day um, for a two-hour, one full fare. Um, when I say only, but it is 40 cents a day. Um, that was minimal, but nonetheless, um, maybe they should have kept it given the fact that hardly anyone's using public transport either. But those things all to me seem to be interrelated. Interrelated, but yeah, but it's it's pretty hard to work out <laughs> actually how, how one influences the, the other and why Melbourne ends up being ends up being more expensive than anywhere else. I, I don't know. It's it's um, don't you think it's rather difficult to. Yeah, no idea. Work it, work it all, work it all out. Um, I, 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 my immediate thought was, well, in Melbourne, perhaps people pay a lot to use tollways, toll roads, you know, if they're driving, because that'll be part of the deal. But then, in Sydney, they're paying people paying a lot to use toll roads as well. Yeah, and in fact, there is a separate story that that um, in Sydney they're actually paying more for tolls. Toll tolls in Sydney cost more yeah. than they do in Melbourne. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised by that because the, their network, I think, is bigger than ours, ours now, and um, some of them are incredibly grandiose projects. Uh, and they've got this new West Connex one that Transurban's just bought into. Yeah, yeah. 
so we're going to have a tollway. Tollway. Uh, we have it. Well, we pretty much have a tollway um, monopoly in 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 transurban these days in Australia wide. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin. Well, um, what does it mean? Hmm. Well, it, people working from home presumably are saving money because they're not paying to go paying to drive their car or to use public transport. Why not? Neither. So that's interesting. And as business uh, knows, they're not spending an either, which is a major problem. They're not going yeah, out because yeah, of because of the because um, of Omicron. That's that's right. We're all we're all staying home because it seems to be the obvious thing to do. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Well, well, um, no. It's, uh, property prices are higher in Sydney, so uh, uh, that means uh, the cost of the space for garages and things will be greater. And so, no, I, I don't get it, Kevin. I can't 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 give you any any um, sensible. <laughs> Yeah. Sensible it's, conclusion there. Mentioning Sydney just reminds me as an, an, an aside comment, but yeah. years ago, um, back in the 80s, when I knew Jack Mundy quite well, oh, yeah. um, Jack used to, Jack did a study, did a, he worked it out, that in major cities like Melbourne and Sydney at that time, and I think it would be a lot more now, yeah. at least a third of the land was devoted totally to the motor car yes. in some way yeah. or other. Yes, yes, that's that's that's... That's how that's how it works out. When you look at roads, you look at parking, um, you look at the the businesses devoted to to looking after cars. All that, yeah, you're right. That's what it comes out to. Yeah. So it's uh, yes, it's car car dependency is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but, but of course, the other uh, related to what we just talked about as well uh, is the fact that. The, the the report that's come out about the um, Melbourne Airport rail link uh, recommends a an eighteen dollar surcharge to catch the train, yeah. but that's over and above your normal Mikey fare. So effectively, if you're full fare, you add about four dollars or something to that. So it comes to about twenty two dollars or something uh. um, to go to the airport. Now we have long argued that the the airport rail link should be able should be accessible on a straight Mikey fare. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I I maintain that should be the way it is. But of course, the state government is dealing with the Commonwealth government, who's providing a lot of money for the for the building of this this incredibly um, uh, incredibly expensive rail line. Was it ten million more? Ten million and um, and counting, I think. And of course, they're saying, well, look, in Sydney, you pay. I think you pay something like that, it's you know, 15, like eighteen dollars. Fifteen yeah. in Sydney. Fifteen but, in Sydney. And I think yeah. there's, but I think there's also a local fare over and above as well. Right. right. Yeah. And in Brisbane, you pay. I think you pay just something like that too. It's, it's. Uh, so both of those have, you know, big, big uh, added, added. Um, and of course, interestingly enough, they've pitched it. Having cho- why did they choose 18? They pitched it at roughly around the cost mm. of the Skybus uh, trip. Mm. So it seems they've said, okay, Skybus charges this wheel charge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's uh, it's 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 sort of. I suppose in a way they're arguing, well, we have to charge this amount of money because we, 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 we it's costing an incredible amount to uh, to build the line to the airport, so we'll have to charge it. A, a, a terrific amount. 
Well, I, I imagine, I hope that means that people who are um, on pensions and things like that get a get a reduction. That'd be that'd be at least something, you know, based on what they pay on um, on uh, Metro on the Metcard, you know. Well, they but should, they should, they they should, should just go on their normal Mikey ticket. But if you're going yeah. to run the argument yeah. that, and I think that is their argument, that it's yeah. so costly to build, we need to charge a yeah. sur- have a surcharge. But yeah. that could yeah. apply to any extension of rail. I mean, well, the, the massive tunnel they're building, this circular thing they're building, or even the current uh-huh. metro tunnels, incredibly costly. Yeah. So yeah. why don't they apply the same argument there? I mean, yeah. it's surely... Yeah. But that, that you can access on a normal Mikey ticket. So mm. why can't mm. you go to the airport on a normal mm. Mikey ticket? Exactly, um, um, but the but, but you know that that's you know it's like that that battle got decided years ago. You know, it's not it's not there's nothing nobody's um, you know making any sensible um, reconsideration of what's going on. It's just um, well, that's why we've always done it. That's the way we'll continue to do it. Oh dear. Ah. Yeah, and on the airport, I got a. Um a thing in the mail in the last couple in the last couple of days uh, ah, from the yeah. airport people, um, and um, about asking if I wanted to comment on the third runway, but they give all these figures going out to 20, uh, 2042, and they you know massive increases. I mentioned earlier on the program massive increases <coughs> in the expect in passenger usage, in freight usage, in the number of, of landings, the number of aircraft um, at a time when 2042 in particular would seem to be critical in terms of climate change. Um, and yet, you know, here's, here's one of the major contributors to climate change talking about expanding massively. Yep, yep. It, well, it's, it's like we're um, living in a, a dual sort of world. You know, there's one, one, one uh, world talks about climate change and worries about it, and then the other world is, is still on the growth path that we've been on, you know, ever since World War Two. It's uh, it, it's sort of like, and neither then neither of them will ever connect to the other. It's, it, it is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, aviation. Maybe they, they'd say if you really questioned them um, at the airport, they'd say, oh well, by by you know 2042, aeroplanes will be using a lot less fuel, and some of them will be electric. Some of them will run on hydrogen and all sorts of things like that. That, that'll mean that they'll um, that they'll put out no emissions or, or much lower emissions. But but you know, 2042 isn't that far away. You know, it's 20 20 years. There's an awful lot's got to happen awfully quickly if if that's going to happen. You know, those sort of things are going to happen to aviation. And I I, I don't quite see that it can happen that fast. You know, even if it's possible, we don't even know really whether the technology to run aeroplanes on, on electricity or, or, or hydrogen, you know, really, really will work. Yeah, interesting. Oh, I was just thinking, I recently read an article on uh, tourism and the pandemic by Mamie Scheller uh, about, like, mobility justice, and she was talking about how, like, um, the sort of rich, privileged countries that are, opening up to some extent and have high vaccination rates and are sort of recovering, um, the people in populations in those countries are sort of coming back to tourism with a vengeance because they've felt cooped up for so long. And so 
there's actually like now this even more pressure on the kind of tourism dependent um, countries and economies of like that they are potentially not as protected um, from the virus but they have all of these like tourists coming in now bringing the virus um, but also that like there is an increase in the elite wanting to travel um, but also wanting to travel safely and like an increase in the use of private jets and things like that oh yes, yes. Um, so yeah I thought that was interesting that like after this period of um, a huge decrease in flying there might be like a spike where everyone's like I want to go yeah. on holiday now yeah well I, I think that's I think that's sure to be the case all the all the English people who haven't had their holidays down in um, Spain and and uh, all the Australians who want to go to Bali and yeah yeah it's going to be um, it's going to be on for young and old once things really do open up uh yeah, I wonder. I want this is off topic, of course, but I wonder whether um, um, the pressure for people to go back to their holiday holiday destinations in third world countries might mean that the um, the third world populations actually get it vaccinated because um, the first world tourists, you know, won't go unless they feel feel safe from the virus. You know, there's certainly been a huge um, um, restriction in the number of people getting getting vaccinated in the third world. You know, the numbers have been very low mm-hmm. compared with the first world, yeah. Yeah, I guess that would be, like, one small, um, like, positive if that did happen. But yeah, yet yeah. But yet to see what happens. Yeah. But, just, yeah, I think I yeah. think the whole the whole thing with aviation is, is, is a, a complete, you know... It, yeah. You know, aviation just wants to, wants to get going again, and you know, on its usual growth path of, but I think something around four percent a year global growth in you know aviation is a normal was the norm over many de- over decades, you know, mm-hmm. and so that that um, that just means they just want to get back on that growth path as fast as as fast as possible. Um, and there is there are things going on, you know, to reduce reduce emissions in aviation, you know, but whether, you know, whether the, whether they they care enough to really make it happen, I don't know. And then, of course, the, um, the cost of making it happen in aviation is huge too if you've got to buy completely new fleets of aeroplanes and things like that. Just wake up the fear, John. Wake up the fear. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would mean aviation would go back to being, a, you know, more elite thing that it used to be, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, you know, when you really, really did pay a, a lot of money to fly, yeah. yeah. Well, one of our favourites, Alan Joyce, from Qantas in the last couple of days has come out again and said the government has to open up and let them, you know, let people come in from overseas again as yeah. well. and expanded. I mean, he, they're getting it two ways now. They they always didn't give us stuff about the environmental impacts of the flying, but now they don't give us stuff about the health impacts either. So, That's right. So they've got it sort of coming and going, really. Um, John, also um, worth mentioning, this is a positive, I think, that um, there's major works just about completed at Warren Pond Station down beyond Geelong there on the Warnable Line. Yeah. Um, and this seems to be a positive in terms of expanding services in that part of the world. Yes, 
Yes, well, you know, there's been a, a lot of residential development down that way on the southern southern edge of um, Geelong, and um, uh, it's meant that that uh, the pressure's been on to improve the um, improve the um, um, commuter services that uh, come through from the south side of Geelong uh, to Melbourne, and uh, the single track. Railway south of Geelong Station meant that um, it was quite difficult to run frequent services that were reliable and, and fast, uh, and so that that um, extension that line has been uh, double tracked south of south of Geelong down to Warren Ponds, and that's meant that they can run more peak hour commuter services to Melbourne, and also it's improved the uh, running of the uh, Warrnambool trains. Uh, which of course go that way on their way down to uh, Bournemouth and um, you know various other various other towns down there in the southwest. So yeah, it is a bit of a it is a bit of a win-win. Of course, it was done because uh, it was politically um, um, important um, for the federal government because they wanted to uh, wanted to keep a keep a seat down there. Um, mm. Well, they actually lost that seat in the last yes. election by a mar- very narrow margin. That's yeah. right. They, they did, yes. And um, their star candidate who lost, she, she was moved into the Senate. Right. So, uh, she lost, so they pushed her into the Senate, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. But that, 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 of course, illustrates, it all illustrates that these things don't, don't get necessarily get done rationally. You know, they get done, they get done when it suits, suits governments politically, you know. So it suited the federal government, and the state government was quite happy to cooperate. Uh, although, you know, it, it should have been a priority for the state government as well. But you know, the state government, of course, has its political priorities as well, just like the feds. The feds, yeah. I won't talk about the developments down there in in terms of uh, what they're doing to the environment, but uh, that's another question yeah. that, that really gets me every time I go through there. Yeah, um, well, that's right. But, uh, of course, all links. It's all now meaning it's almost what solid housing down to the surf coast. Yeah. Almost down to talkers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, unfortunately. Um, the another interesting item, though, in the last little bit since we were last on air, a number of people, the cities of Melton and Wyndham, um, the Port of Melbourne, the Victorian Transport Association, Victoria University, and a few others are calling out for Truganina to be the centre of a new hub, mm. a new freight hub. Um, right. Which um, which would get truck if it goes ahead as I want it to would get trucks off the road a lot of trucks off the road. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, um, finally, it's been talked about now for around fifteen fifteen years, but um, it's finally happening that um, the these freight hubs are being created around around Melbourne, and the idea being that. Um, Say freight going to the port of Melbourne won't have to go directly um, via via truck into the congested area around the port of Melbourne, you know, which is really, you know, right up against the the, the CBD and quite it is, the whole area is congested, and people in the inner western suburbs at the moment, not Truganina, of course, which is much further west, but the inner western suburbs at the moment suffer from huge number of trucks. Hauling freight, mainly containers, heading heading for the uh, heading for the port, um, 
and the idea is that the trucks can can uh, take their freight to these hubs uh, where the, where the uh, the containers go on the trains that, that can shuttle shuttle into the port of Melbourne for uh, efficient sort of transfer to the container ships. Uh, so the idea seems to be to have more than one hub. Uh, and Truganina appears to be one site that people like, but that, that there also need to be a site north of Melbourne, up on the northern edges, up around Craigieburn, somewhere up there. And then there also need to be one in the southeast, um, somewhere near Dandenong. The one in Dandenong, there is, it's actually in the process of being designed and built, and I think it, it branches off the Cranbourne, Cranbourne Railway Line. And um, the idea is that there'll be frequent shuttle trains, a number of quite a number of trains a day, from each of these hubs, uh, taking freight into the port of Melbourne. And they, they, the trains wouldn't be huge, and the trains can can run with the suburban lot trains on the same lines out of the peak hours. Not in the peak hours when when the lines are really busy, but out of the peak hours, these trains can run between the suburban trains on the lines. And you know it's. It's it's the way um, sensible cities um, operate operate Sydney Sydney's more advanced than we are in doing the same thing, uh, but it it it, it is um, it is good, a good good policy and uh, it seems to be finally happening. But of course, with all these things, will it just be uh, sort of done as a gesture, or will it actually be designed to? You know, to get the, the maximum number of trucks off the road, not just well, there the need to be some major works at the Port of Melbourne itself, wouldn't there, to cater for all that? Yeah, yeah, uh, the, 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 that's that seems to be in hand too. I mean, what you'd, what would be ideal would be that the, the, the trains could run right onto the wharves, right beside the um, ships, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I think they are going to be. The shuttle trains are going to be unloaded by, you know, by overhead crane, um, a little bit away from the port, and then the final kilometre might be done by um, by truck. I fear, yeah, um, which you know would could could be could be done better. But everybody seems reasonably con- convinced it'll work, and of course the the, the question will be how the how the, the cost and pricing of this thing works out to make it work best. You know, to its best degree, yeah. Yeah, so I don't quite understand why Truganina would be the only place you'd need this um, these sort of um, transfer hubs, but it, I think it would be good to, a good location for at least one of them, yeah. Mm. Well, you say it's happening at Dandenong anyway, so it, yeah, that looks yeah. like it's going to get... Yeah, okay. yeah, and uh, I'm pretty sure the one up north north of the city is... is um, is happening too up near Craigieburn, somewhere like that. Yeah. That's a key so the big the big freight companies are in favour favour of this thing, I gather. Yeah. That's a, uh, yeah. Lined up with that is another interesting issue that that our fleet of diesel powered trucks and trains are incredibly incredibly polluting, both of them. Uh, we haven't bothered to keep up with the pollution controls required on. On trucks and trains in the rest of the Western world at all, we've just you know just not thought it was a problem. So that that means both very old locomotives and very old trucks 
mm. are still roaring around the city, belching out huge amounts of pollution. We've been talking about it being a problem for years. We decades. have. Decades. I know. Nobody's noticed, Kevin. Nobody's taken the slightest notice of it. <laughs> Speaking of decades, well, I'm going to finish on a, on a nostalgic note for you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was going, I found an old file from the 70s of transport stuff yeah. um, in the last few days. I've got one I'll can bring back, I'll bring it out to you next month as well, which I'm sure you'll find interesting. <laughs> but here's a cutting from about 1977. Um, and it says super trains with carriages that lean around corners may be introduced on the Sydney to Melbourne line by 1995, <laughs> slashing almost five hours off the trip. The NSW <laughs> Premier, Mr Griner, has announced a study would be made of the new X2 or tilt trains. They are considered the next generation of XPT and are expected to cut the 13-hour journey to eight and a half, the technology, etc., etc., etc. John, that's 27 years ago. Has it turned up yet? <laughs> They brought one out from Sweden to, to demonstrate back then. And I actually got a ride on it between Canberra and Sydney with an old mate of mine. Yeah. But it came and went. I think the... Oh, dear. Um, and the... Uh, the um, the, uh, the, uh, the idea was that the... Um, the uh, you know, the thing would be introduced and it would help help somebody win an election... My phone doorbell's ringing. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's, you can hear the doorbell in the background. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we're really doing live radio. Yeah, I'm going, I'm going down to the door because I, I don't know what it is, so I better answer it. But, yeah. So, yeah, you're right, Kevin. It was a long time ago. Long time ago. Next month you'll find the one even more interesting, I think. Because, well, never mind. I'll, I'll tell you next month. Okay, well, it, it, um, it was a, it was a very nice ride on a very nice train, and I don't know how much it cost the um, the New South Wales state government to um, <laughs> to organise the uh, demonstration. So they could win the next election. That's right. So they could win the next election. Yeah, well, you yeah. go and answer your door, and um, okay. and we'll let it go. It is fifty six, so it's, we've got about four. But I only got a couple of minutes because we have to be out of here by fifty eight anyway, roughly. Right. So, okay. Uh, but okay, John, well, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you next month. Okay, nice to, nice to be back on air and nice to, nice to talk to both of you. Okay, yeah. sorry we put okay. you to sleep. Cheers. Um, <laughs> there we are. Just, and just to finish up in the last bit, another bit of nostalgia. Um, uh, the financial review did a thing last week about the 80s and how wonderful it was with Hawke and Keating and the great things they did for the economy. Mm. But they listed a whole list of every year, the major events in the economy and in Australia. And in the whole year, there's the only mention of transport at all was that Hawke smashed the pilot strike by bringing in the military. They, don't, they didn't use those terms. They're my terms of Hawke Hawk union bashing and smashing. But yeah. the, only mention, the only vague mention of transport was the pilot strike and the fact that Hawke brought in the military to smash the strike. So there you are. Okay, that'll do us for today. That's our yeah. first day back. So there we are. We've done it. Next, Thanks, oh, next week, um, Energy Day, we are hoping to talk again to someone from down Hastings because you might have noticed that huge ship came in last week taking uh, liquid hydrogen to Japan and it was a trial run for a future plant, but the, it's going to be, the hydrogen is going to be made using coal. They plan to bury the mm. CO2 out in the ocean. Um, and again, there was no EES on this one, but um, we, the people of Hastings fought last year, and again, they're pretty upset about the environmental possibilities of that one. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that next yeah, week. Something and to chew on for next time. Another issue we want to raise on that 
on that, I'm hoping to do it next week, is the the fact that uh, increasingly we're finding that the materials they need to build batteries as part of the fight against climate change are themselves causing environmental problems around various places, and that's worth looking at whether you know whether the cure is worse than it, etc. Yeah. So we'll, we'll uh, talk about those issues. Yeah. Talk, Zeb, talk again next week. Zeb, thank yourself and say goodbye. Thank you, me. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll leave you with hopefully just a smidgen of Emma Donovan because um, she's the best. Uh, so we'll see you next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.